Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. Yep, I'm Peter Switzer, and with today's show, we were lucky to snare the great Australian cricket captain, Steve Waugh, who came on to talk about his new book, The Spirit of Cricket. He wandered around India taking photographs. He's a really keen photographer, but he also did want to capture why India loves cricket so much. They love people like Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting and... Uh, Sir Donald Bradman, they really, really love cricket. So the book is an interesting one indeed. But I used it also to try and understand what drove a champion like Steve to reach the heights of the game, to become a legendary cricketer and a legendary leader. And then I catch up with Michael Madrison, who is a Melbourne-based hospitality entrepreneur who has had to cope with the Victorian coronavirus lockdown and the slow release of restrictions from that lockdown. Michael owns landmark venues such as the Everly, Bar Margot and Heartbreaker, and that's what has happened to this impressive business builder. Since the second wave virus crisis hit the windy city down south, his heart has been broken, but I'm sure as you'll see or or as you'll hear, he really does have the, the kind of steel that will bring this business back, but gee, it's been a challenge. And listen to him help someone like us not living in Victoria, not living in Melbourne, not being an entrepreneur, you get to understand what kind of challenges they've had to face. That's the show. So let's kick off. Well, Steve Waugh, our former Australian cricket captain, has just released a new book of photography from his travels around India, capturing the spirit of cricket. And I want to know why photography and India has become so important to an Australian legend of cricket like Steve Waugh. Steve, thanks for joining us. No worries, Peter. Cheers. So, Steve, before I get to the books, I want to finish on the books. I think a lot of people need to understand what seems to have happened to you since you retired in 2004. And I guess I'd love to ask the question, did you find retirement hard, but did you know exactly what you wanted to do when you did retire? I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I, I, I knew that I wanted to be doing something different and something that challenged me and something I was going to be passionate about. So uh, it didn't reveal itself straight away, but I was always into writing books and being a bit entrepreneurial myself. And I just started my charities up. So I knew I was going to be busy. And then all of a sudden I was given the huge honor of being Australian of the year. So that um, made sure the first year was pretty busy. And then from then on, it, it hasn't really stopped. Um, I haven't been directly involved too much in cricket except for being involved with the Ashes last year, but I've also been a mentor for the Australian Olympic team in Beijing and London and just doing a, a variety of a cross-section of things which um, have been away from cricket in some ways. Steve, have you redefined Steve War as a – because obviously you've because of your work, you've created a great brand that you know people really value. Have you been able to formally create the business of Steve War as a brand? I guess, yeah, it's been a bit of a challenge. I mean, I've always uh, been interested in business and being a bit entrepreneurial and doing things myself in different ways. Um, yeah, writing books was, was the start of that, I think, and then to self-publish the last couple of books has been a huge learning challenge business-wise. Um, I did have a business project with Macquarie Bank early on where we were, we were going to set up um, these cricket-based real estate uh, communities in India, but the global economic crisis came and sort of stopped that. So that was four or five years' work went into that. So. Mm. Um, yeah, and I guess just being, um, I like to create my own content and this is part of this, um, which I've done recently. So 
Yeah, I've tried to separate the brand away from cricket, but at the end of the day, people know you for cricket and what you've done. But um, I'd like to think that um, it's not only cricket that I'm known for. Yeah, I don't think you'll easily separate the, the history of Steve Waugh and cricket, mate. The Steve Waugh Foundation, tell us about what it does and how it came about. Yeah, the Steve Waugh Foundation in Australia looks after kids who suffer from rare diseases. So really, the orphans of the health system, the one that... Um, don't get support because there's no other organisations that um, that look after that type of disease or there's no government funding. So they're the rare diseases. There's six to 8,000 rare diseases. Um, we look after the kids that have the extremely rare conditions, so which have a prevalence of less than two in 100,000. So there's still 400 of those diseases. They're the ones with all those long, weird names you've never heard of before. Mm. And they really have no support. So we aim to stand beside them, be their voice and... Um, and, and give them and provide whatever the needs are and stand beside them for a long time because once you have a rare disease, it doesn't go away. And as the kids get older, their, their needs change. So, But it came about really from um, the work I did in India after meeting Mother Teresa on one of the cricket trips. So I started doing some charity uh, with an organisation called Udayan, which is a rehabilitation centre for kids who either suffer from leprosy or their parents do. And I saw with my profile, I could raise awareness, I could raise funds and I could do good for a cause. And that really led me into my work in Australia, which is um, the foundation which led it myself of um, been, I guess, running for the last 16 or 17 years. Yeah, I, I believe uh, Madame Teresa is very, very diminutive, but she she comes with a lot of power. Did you find that? Yeah, she radiated this an enormous aura and presence, and often you hear people talk about oh, you know, their, their idols and their and they don't live up to it when they meet them in person. But for me, when, when I met her, she's definitely had this um, incredible presence about her and power. And uh, you could see that she was um, someone who was influential and, and had made a huge difference. And people looked up to her and, and, and felt that, um, you know, she did these incredible things without, um, you know, looking, worrying about material possessions. So she looked mm. after the poorest of the poor, which I find quite incredible for a whole life. Mm. Do you think it had a big impact on you? That moment certainly did because it, it sent me off in a different direction. Um, I think as a professional cricketer, you sort of worry about yourself and mm. and um, you, you want to do the, be the best you can possibly be. So your whole focus is pretty much around yourself to, to make it to that level. And um, then all of a sudden the world opened up and I saw there was a different side of things and uh, we were so privileged the way we lived. And I just thought if, in my position, I can, I can actually help with my profile. So why not get out there and, and try and make a difference? Mm. Are you staggered how... Uh, Indians love people like you because <laughs> yeah, like you know, yeah, we, yeah. we we love you on one level, but they love you on an entirely different level, don't they? Yeah, it's um, and you watch some of the Indian cricketers like Tendulkar and, and Dravid and Kohli and those guys. It's uh, they are honestly godlike status. It's um, you know the people worship the ground they walk on, and whatever the word they say is given extra importance and meaning. So everything is is exaggerated and. Um, but for someone like myself, yeah, when you're playing and you're captain of your country, it's, it's the same thing. They know everything about you and they just want to be around you and touch you and have a photograph and and uh, take a selfie. Um, these days, it's a bit different. I've been out of the game 16 or 17 years, so it's more sort of a, a respect sort of thing. Having said that, I did need security around me to sort of negotiate that, um, can he please take some photographs first and then we'll have a game of cricket later on. So everyone <laughs> in a win-win situation. <laughs> All right, so tell us about your interest in photography. When did it start and how did you get to a standard where you've effectively created like a, a cricket coffee book? With How many photographs are there in this book? Um, yeah, there's probably 220, but um, I guess I've always had an interest in photography. Most people do. It's basically what you see through your eyes and and, and 
being on those cricket tours of the subcontinent really opened opened my uh, uh, broadened my horizons from being in the western suburbs of Sydney, not knowing too much. All of a sudden, landing in Mumbai in 1986 um, was just a totally different world. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the total assault and bombardment of your senses. And looking out the window, there was things going on I'd never seen before. And all of a sudden, I had my camera and I was taking photographs, but I could never get outside the bus and see the real India. And that's something that uh, I wanted to do from 1986. And um, and the time came with the support of Canon, who have been fantastic in this project. Um, I wanted the, to go out and try and capture the spirit of Cricket India through my eyes, what makes it a religion. And But I knew I needed to take my photography to a different level. I'm the sort of guy always been on the automatic setting and take a million photos and hope for the best. Mm. I wanted to surprise people with this book and, uh, and to show them that I, I can actually take photographs on a different level, but I needed a good coach and... Thankfully, a good mate of mine, Trent Park, who'd been on a number of tours, who now is the only Australian uh, in the Magnum Photo Agency, so prestigious French group, and he's an outstanding photographer and a great coach. And he agreed to thankfully come on this trip for 18 days. So I stood beside him, followed him, watched him, talked to him, asked him a million questions. And and now I've sort of progressed where I can take, uh, I took all the shots on the manual setting. So I was sort of understanding shutter speed and aperture and ISO and and getting the light and, and the mood and, and capturing different things. I, I have a question down here which I, I meant to, to ask you and it seems the right time to ask you now, given the fact that you said that, well, you wanted to be good at photography but you realised you needed to have a coach. Uh, my question is, have you worked out your secret of success? Um, and... A lot of people would say to me when I ask that question, whether they'd be great business performers or whatever, they say, well, invariably they'll say that having the influence of somebody else, whether it be a coach, a mentor, a person who's, who's achieved a lot. I think Jerry Harvey said he used to go drinking with a whole lot of older people than him and even though he enjoyed the drinks, he, he was there to learn from people who were older and smarter than him. Yeah. How, how, how important... Um, uh, you know, in terms of your success, yeah. w w was it mentors and your own commitment, or b or both? I think both those, but also I also believe that um, if you've got an idea, enact it, have a go about it, and and work out the details later on. Because so many people have great ideas, but they're scared to go in it because they think oh, I might be able to do it, or I might fail, or it might be too hard. My advice after doing a lot of different things is that I never thought I was going to do is just go for it and then work it out later. And it's amazing how, how many times it does come off and you learn and it's not as hard as you imagine it to be. So I guess this is an example. That setting up my charity was another example. Um, just going headlong into it and going, let's set up this charity and then having to work out all the compliance issues and the tax and how do you raise money and how do you get a board together, how do you run meetings. Um, I guess I've learned, I've learned that... Um, you can learn on the go, but surround yourself with smart people. That's that's a pretty good tip in business as well. Mm. Uh, and trust your gut instinct. Um, that, that's one thing I've always done is, um, you know, a lot of people told me this project wouldn't work, you know, it, it wouldn't sell, don't self-publish. No one buys coffee table photographic books, but I wanted to prove them wrong and say we can do it a different way This because I want it to be a top quality photographic book, try and capture the spirit of cricket and also self-publish. So, And then alongside that, I'm doing a, a documentary and a photo exhibition. So... All these things um, 12 months ago, I never thought I could do, but mm. I've realized now that you can do it with a lot of hard work and good people around you. Being business-oriented, um, Steve, I can't help but ask this question. Will you be um, releasing the book in India as well? Well, we're selling uh, self-publishing, so we're selling via the website. So yeah. we've already had um, quite a lot of people buy it in India. Um, yeah. 
the plan was to go back there and have a launch there, but obviously with COVID, that's totally changed that, and our mm. business plan has sort of suffered accordingly because I thought a big percentage of the market would be, uh, I guess, Indian corporates. And the book was made primarily to for, for corporates to give away as a, as a gift. Um, obviously, individuals can buy it, but, um, you know, it's a big coffee table. We'll price a different price point. But, um, yeah, I'd love to go back to India and showcase it. We've already had an offer to, to go to England to hold a ex- photographic exhibition. So I'd love to take this um, all around the place, particularly Australia, then overseas. Um, I think it's something different and maybe it hasn't been done this way before. What do you reckon anyone will learn from the book just yeah cricket lovers i think would be fascinated to see the many aspects of cricket in india because they are fanatical about it but what do you think someone else will learn from the book um, i'm hoping it's not just cricket people that'll gravitate towards a book because it, it really is a life story and it just showcases a i guess the human spirit out there particularly in india you know, a lot of the photos i've taken are from people who haven't got much uh, we visit the dar of islam and Physically challenged cricketers, uh, the Blind Cricket Association. Um, so all these different places went to the deserts, uh, the mountains, to the to the uh, to the beaches. And um, yeah, I think they will learn that um, you know the spirit of humanity is really strong, and it do, you don't have to have money or wealth to be um, to be rich. I guess these mm. people have got rich in memories and rich in, in family and friends. And um, yeah, so this, and I'm hoping that uh, they'll be inspired by the quality of photographs I've taken, Steve. Yeah, obviously you've been touched by the the difficulties that people um, live with in India, um, yep. and and I know in reading your story that your complacency was not for a six when Lynette had a stroke. Mm-hmm. Did did that have a big impact on you? Because you're often described as you know ice cold and steely and determined and whatever. Mm-hmm. You kind of in fact one of your books was called Out of the Comfort Zone. As a bloke, and I'm a bloke too, we often yeah. do get knocked out of our comfort zone. Was it a really important knocking out of your comfort zone experience for you? Yeah, well, it certainly was. I mean, yeah, people say, oh, I guess what you're saying, ruthless and cold. That's, I guess, I didn't say ruthless to you, did I? said, yeah, well, okay, do right. I, yeah. I don't mind. I don't yeah. mind ruthless because that means you're making most of your abilities, really, and you're mm. making, um, you're not shortchanging yourself. But I think that was my way of coping playing international cricket because I came in when we were losing and doing it tough and I had to sort of put things away in certain boxes and I protected myself by being that way. I think away from cricket, it's totally different and obviously a yeah, life-changing experience when um, my wife, Lynette, had that stroke and didn't know whether she was going to live or not and had three young kids. I mean, that was um, you know, all the balls got tossed up in the air that day and, uh, and it was just a matter of coping the best you can. I knew I had to be strong. I guess it was like being a leader again, the captain. That, yeah. you know, no matter what the pressures you're under and how much you felt, you had to be strong for other people around you because they were looking towards you as guess being the rock but underneath I was struggling as much as anyone and that's something I learned in cricket too that um, sometimes you've got to bluff your way through and and it all turns out positive in the end but I, I tried to stay positive and take it literally one step at a time because that's how Lynette had to recover. Mm. It's funny you know I, I never even thought about leadership until I, I looked one day and we've got 20 odd employees and you realise that yeah, you, you might have got to a certain stage because of your own ability, but all of a sudden someone wants you to be effectively their leader. Who, who had the who or, or what book or what author? Who do you think had the biggest impact on you in, in shaping your leadership? Um, I think it was just my inquisitive nature and looking at people and seeing the leaders before me and taking the good parts and not using the, the parts that weren't so positive. Um, I'd read a lot of, um, I guess, um, 
books on leadership uh, over the years. I think Shackleton was a great leader, Ernest Shackleton, the mm. Antarctic explorer. His leadership lessons are really amazing. But um, uh, John Wooden, his quotes, um, you know, the yeah. American. Um, yeah, so just picking up bits and pieces. But really, it's um, I try and learn by myself and, and do it my way. I think that's one thing I learned as a leader is to be authentic and real and be original. I always said that if I'm going to make a mistake, at least make an, an original mistake and not someone else's. So that probably took me a while as a leader to find my feet. And, and as a player as well, I tried to do it my way, which maybe I was a bit slow progressing at start, both as a captain and, and as a player. But in the end, it was it was me and it was the real thing. And I think that made, made me stronger by doing it that way. But sometimes it's a bit of a risk early on. Yeah. I must admit, I've, I've always found it easier to lead other people other than my sons. It seems as though <laughs> it's so much harder, isn't it? Because they do yeah. know all your weaknesses as well, don't they? Yeah, I mean, being a parent is definitely the hardest hardest job and uh, it's the most difficult leadership role of anything. Yeah. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us. Now, tell us about the book. If people want to buy the book, where do they go? Yeah, they just go to steveward.com.au. It's um, self-publishing and mm. we've also got a, a photographic exhibition at 21 Oxford Street, uh, Paddington, called The Play Box. That starts October 31. There's also a doco on ABC November 17, so um, it all comes together, so. It sounds as though you've put together a very good marketing plan. Well done, mate. Great talking to you and best of luck with the book. Thanks, Pete. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. So yep. Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife, Maureen Jordan, Mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? Well, joining me on the show is Michael Madrison, who's the founder and CEO of Made in the Shade Hospitality Group. Um, Michael, thanks for coming on the program. It must be really tough running a business like yours at the moment in uh, in Melbourne. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's keeping us on our toes. Mm. Tell us the history of the company. Um, yes, so I opened the Everly in two thousand and eleven in July. Uh, from there. Uh, I opened Heartbreaker in 2015. Um, that same year, we also launched Navy Strength Ice, our handgut ice company, and Everly Bottling Company, which is our bottled cocktails. Um, following that, we then launched uh, Connie's Pizza in 2017, 
and then Barmar Go in 2019, last year. Right. So the Everly, I, I presume, is is it a pub or a bar or what? Like I remember, a cocktail bar. A cocktail mm-hmm. bar. And mm-hmm. and where where would someone from not living in Melbourne find the Everly? Uh, if you were to look for the Everly, you would head down that uh, wonderfully famous street, Gertrude Street mm-hmm. in Fitzroy. Yep. You'd find Bell's Hot Chicken, which is a uh, uh, an amazing fried hot chicken shop yeah. and you go up the stairs and you'd find uh you'd find us we've been tucked away in there since uh since 211 yeah so given the fact that you, you know your whole business is around people intermixing socializing and whatever what have you had to do to keep the business alive and I won't use the word profitable. I don't know whether you are profitable, but no. yeah, keeping it alive. How how have you done that? Look, uh, like I said earlier, it's um, I'm just very happy to be here. Mm. Um, there is, uh, I think, the word profit um, went out the window a long time ago. Mm. We um, it's not a word that we, uh, my wife Zara and I, kind of throw between us, you know, at the moment. I think survival is probably a, a more common word we use for our businesses, I mm. suppose. Uh, and what we've had to do, I think, like many, many uh, business owners, and we've had to uh, be incredibly uh, agile, um, flexible, uh, very kind of staying on our toes for the, for the most part, just kind of, Trying to stay as relevant as possible, we um, Bamago sell. We um, we deliver food through Providor, which is the Shane Delia um, delivery app. Mm. So we are lucky to be featured on there for Bamago and the Everly bottled cocktails too. Um, our online sales for the Everly bottling company have obviously have definitely been a lot better since since the lockdown, and people have been uh, told to stay indoors. But as for uh, our bars, Heartbreaker, and the Everly. We've been. Um, I haven't been inside Heartbreaker since March, mm. you know, which is heartbreaking. Uh, really heartbreaking, right? Mm. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, yeah, my poor second-born, just covering, covering dust and letting all those uh, hopes and dreams just settle on the on those dusty floors. Um, obviously, like a lot of people like a mate of mine like Guy Grossi um, was very upset that Daniel Andrews uh, is remaining keeping restrictions on hospitality businesses at least for another two weeks and I believe even after two weeks it's not going to be a really easy way to make money even after that is that right? Correct absolutely I think um, you know, I think, look, hospitality was definitely one of the biggest industries that have been rocked by what's happened this year, um, along with, you know, arts, the arts industry as well. Um, there are a couple of, um, and the music industry too. I mean, no one's happy about it. I, I actually, I don't know um, how much energy I can put into being angry about the fact that we are still another two weeks away or... I should refocus that energy into preparing and getting ready because we don't have any staff and we don't have um, outdoor furniture and when we're not set up for outdoor trading, which is you know obviously the 
the great white unicorn or hope that everybody's banking it to be, especially in the CBD where it's going to be a ghost town anyway. Um, so look, you know, like, am I happy that it's another a further two weeks away? No, of course not. Um, I wish it were tomorrow, but I also don't have, I, I would need to order stuff, you know, I, like every other owner, I think we need a little bit of time to prepare. So I guess I'm just not going to waste any time worrying about the yeah, additional two weeks and just get busy, I mm. suppose. Uh, because my businesses aren't traditionally uh, businesses that serve outdoors or trade outdoors. So we're going to have to learn how to develop or how to kind of redesign the model in order to accommodate for outdoor uh, drinking and dining mm. at all three venues, Everly included. So um, we just got our heads down trying to put all those pieces together and trying to figure it out so that we can, we can kind of go out with our best feet forward, yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah, but I think most importantly, I think probably the thing to be a little bit more annoyed, a little more annoyed about it would be the uh, the twenty the twenty person cap inside the venue. I think that's uh, I read this morning. Shane Delia was talking about how it was a, a pretty ineffective model to open his venue at uh, twenty people in total, which I agree. Um, I think we could do with some more people inside. I think um, 10 people per room is just not enough. Yeah. Um, what have you done as a consequence of these restrictions um, that you would never, never even have thought of under the normal trading conditions that your businesses were built on? And um, will you keep them up even if normalcy returns – hopefully ASAP, if it does, will you keep doing the things you pivoted into? I think um, we're in no position, I think, to say no to anything right now. And I, I think that's probably um, one of the better things to say. I, uh, I wouldn't say that I would stop doing anything that's bringing in any revenue whatsoever at the moment. I think it's really really important we've got a lot of making up to do we've got so many we have a, a mountain of pile of debt that have that has accrued over the year um we are going to have to work as hard as we can to chip away at it and also support our teams people that haven't received any support we've got a, we've got a lot of work to do so i think um moving forward we'll keep we'll keep uh going as, as absolutely hard as we can. Um, we'll maintain our delivery models through uh, Provador and um, and anything else that we can do to try and, and get kind of oxygen coming through the doors, I suppose. Yep. Do, do you have business loans or are your loans linked to your residential properties? I'm trying to gauge what kind of attitude have you received from lenders if you have any lenders um, – involved in your operation we've um i think uh we uh, we we were lucky enough to be able to qualify for a loan with our with our regular institution yeah. i think um early days so that that was a, a great big help especially because we had um we had no we had no money to be able to um provide and apply for the job keeper initiative um in the beginning. So that loan was absolutely um, imperative to being, uh, you know, eligible for JobKeeper. So I'm, 
deeply grateful for that. That is tied also to my house or to my to my home loan, I suppose. So um, you know, we you have you have those mm. attached to it as well, which is um just the way it goes. And I think um, you know, business owners all understand that sometimes you just do what you have to do to get things done and try and work out some of the details a little later on. Mm. But, um, you know, in the early days, it was um, uh, a real fight and a real struggle. And we had to think very quickly about how were we going to keep the business. You know, I think uh, there were probably a few times there it could have really, we could have lost it. Mm. Uh, so I am grateful to be sitting here in our office today. But, um, yeah, look, I think there could have been a, a lot more uh, assistance in other ways. We were rejected for so, so many publicised grants. Um, I think there could have been a lot more aid in that in that regard, though. Um, landlords, how they've been treating you? We've um, – it's been a bit of a mixed bag. I have six different, different properties, so uh, it's been a, a bit of a – a mixed relationship, I suppose. Some have been uh, very understanding. Some have been understanding but unwilling. Um, and some have been just unwilling, I suppose. I think um, I think that's just the way it goes. I, I believe everybody, um, everybody is obviously affected by what's happened this year. So yeah. everybody has their own story. Yeah. Uh, Michael, the, the state governments around the country uh, had had directions to landlords uh, about how they're supposed to treat their their tenants. Did did the Victorian regulations on landlords assist you? To a point, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. How many employees did you have before this terrible calamity uh, came upon you? Uh, 86. Yeah. Yeah. How many do you think you'll have back? Let's imagine, let's, just, let's go down down the track. Uh, two weeks' time, you open up, very limited space, limited opportunity. But let's just say by December, it's double that. Mm-hmm. How many employees will you need to make the business work for you? It's a good question. We've got... Um I guess a bunch of the employees that were working behind the bars and, and on the tables that are now either um, bottling cocktails or doing something that was definitely outside their original uh, mm. bis- um, job description. Um, well, I would I had 85 then. I now have about 29. Uh, out of the 85, only 29, uh, 20. 26 were eligible for JobKeeper, mm. uh, which is heartbreaking. Um, so I think once we do, when we do reopen and we, let's say we can double our capacity indoors, we will need to take on probably an extra 15 to 20 people. Um, that is also kind of reigniting businesses like our ice company that is completely um, at the mercy of, of bars and restaurants being able to trade, you know. Yeah. Bars and restaurants can't open. I can't sell them ice, and uh, our ice is going to be a bit of a luxury as well. But we'll have to completely 
restart and reboot that business up as well. So I'd say about another 15 to 20 people that will have to um, uh, top up. How important has JobKeeper been to, to keep you effectively alive as a business? Uh, I would say very important, most important. Yeah. Um, without it, I think we would – it'd be a very, very different story. What uh, we didn't need was the amount to drop. Um, I think uh, in Victoria especially, I think mm. we, we really deserve to keep – to maintain the 1500 per fortnight because then people were able to – understand and get by and 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 continue yeah but the drop to 1200 was just a just a, you know, a kick in the teeth you know to the victorians mm. who've you know been told to stay indoors for another four months you know yeah so now yeah. it's, it's a really good point and uh um, i am surprised the treasurer hasn't thought about it because he is a a, um, as I described him, a pathetic Victorian, as most Victorians are, <laughs> so one-eyed and supportive and loving of their state. But, yeah, I think you're absolutely right because um, the rest of the country is progressively getting better. If you look at restaurants in, in Sydney and cafes, more and more people are able to get into these restaurants and you can see that, you know, life is coming back to normal. You guys have been um, denied that and you, you really should have been given a special uh, set of circumstances. Um, do you do you think by the by sometime in 2021, provided there are no more lockdowns and whatever, that your business will start getting back on its feet? Struggling, I guess, for a while. You have to, you given the. But do you think, say, by this time next year, you have a sense of optimism? I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to hope that uh, 12 months from now we could start looking. To a better future, I think. I I believe that we'll be uh, we'll have our heads down and pretty pretty quiet there um, mm. for the for the next twelve months. You know, once we get to open, like I said, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Um, but fingers crossed, a year from now, uh, we will be able to at least have a real a plan that we can work to. I think, and I, I think on the advice of our accountants, we've got. We've been advised it's probably around about six years before we can get back to where we were. Jeez, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear uh, around the CBD in which um, Heartbreaker and, and Barmago are. So I think we don't. I really uh, fingers crossed for a, a serious, you know, considered rejuvenation kind of uh, process in the CBD because uh, you know it's. We don't we don't have the gorgeous bridges and we don't and we don't have the beaches. So um, you know, I think our nightlife or the hospitality in, uh, industry in Melbourne is is a postcard in itself. And I think um, they really they absolutely really have to get behind it to make sure that this industry can not just survive but thrive again and really you know help people act like people and. What's the, you know, we often say that um, a threat, you know, delivers an opportunity. Has there been an opportunity that you've thought, well, gee, if it wasn't for this, I wouldn't have thought of this or I wouldn't have been better at business? Is there is there one significant positive that's come out of this uh, for you, Michael? Um, it's a great, and I try to ask myself this, this bit, 
And I think uh, one of the things that I that would have come out of that have come out of this for me, you know, the first one that springs to mind was should have should have moved out of Victoria. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's I think. Uh, I think once we get to put this behind us, it'll be great to discuss just how much of a slog or how hard the work was to keep the businesses. I think um, the message that, that you know, and, it, and look, at the end of the day as well, it's you don't want to keep talking about, you don't want to keep talking about the sad stories, but the, but the, the truth is business owners have had to fight tooth and nail just to keep these businesses, just to keep these jobs. And, you know, I think, my my takeaway is that the support isn't you know there there was a really a really great campaign that was that was present this year and it wasn't coming from my side and I think there was a lot of talk um, but at the end of the day you know like I think if we had if we had a much if we had much better support we'd be able to do our jobs better we'd we'd be able to give jobs to the people, mm. you know, uh, we'd be able to support our people. So I think um, coming out of this, you know, I'd really, and I, I feel this when I, when I talk in front of the team I've got left right now and it's, you know, uh, they, I don't even know if they, they look at us like, Oh, you've just got us on job keepers. So you must be like raking it in. Uh, you know, like, mm. it's just, it, I, I think as a business owner, you're, you may you almost pinned to be the villain constantly, and especially this follows after like so much of that the wage theft issue that was that was running rife mm. through the hospitality sector, you know, prior to this all happening yep. as well, you know. And I think at the end of the day, my wife and I we, we really still do work seven days a week, just trying to make sure that the lights stay on so that people have a job to come back to. Mm. Um, so look, there are my take my takeaways from this were will be. I've worked harder this year than I've worked any other year in my entire life. And I've, you know, um, while I probably have a lot, a lot, lot less to show for it and we're set back beyond, beyond years, um, I guess the fact that we've still got a shell with lights on gives us the opportunity to, to fill it up again one day. Mm. Well, I think you make a very good point. Um, and you'd like to think that, um, the employees out there actually do learn that employers aren't always the villain, that they actually do love, they do, in very commas, love their employees because uh, we're, we're all in it together. But it's been a, a challenge for all of us and uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, mate, and I really hope uh, Victoria can rebound as quickly as possible, that your business rebounds. And when they let me into the into well, I guess I can come in, but I can't come back to New South Wales easily. But when that happens, I'll make sure I spend a bit of money at the Everly and all your other organisations as well. Thanks for joining us. I look us. forward to it. Thanks for your time. And that's the show for the day. Thanks for joining us. If you have any ideas of people who you'd love me to talk to, contact us and we'll try and get them. Britain time! Britain time! <laughs>